Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. What's up? Welcome to Hertzogcast. Yeah, Hertzogcast, Twin Peaks cast, self-indulgence cast, I think, is the more abstract word for it, but yeah. That's just an, that is, self-indulgence cast just means podcast. I think those are the same <laughs> definition. <laughs> Who's really doing a podcast for somebody else's benefit? Dude, I, I'm sure we've done whole podcast episodes at one point about how self-indulgence is actually really good. Right. True. true. And, and you need to start a podcast that's purposely self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. Which I agree with. I, I think that's the main problem with the world is we just don't have enough podcasts. <laughs> Definitely not. That sounds podcast. sarcastic, but I think that's true. Yeah, the self indulgence worked out great for Agira, which we'll get to today. Hot take on that. Yeah, Agira. <laughs> well, was that self indulgence or is that um, no just a nightmare? Yeah, <laughs> it's like you're on a boat trip with a walking nightmare, dude. Mm-hmm. Played perfectly by Klaus Kinski. First time that Kinski and Herzog collaborated on a film together of course famously they went on to collaborate lots of times and became lifelong friends but also enemies in a very weird way that only these two psychotic germans could do uh and that's a whole separate story what what Um, happened there i was reading klaus kinsey's wikipedia page and there's some allegations that he may have diddled his daughter or his stepdaughter but also, she wrote that book like 20 years after he died. Is that fair? I don't know. I mean, why would she say that anyway? Well, I don't know. You know. You know, whether he did or didn't, it's almost immaterial. It's like, that's his daughter, and she chose to say something like that about him 20 years after his death. So clearly, there was some issue in the relationship. I mean, yeah, that just doesn't happen out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, we might wind up... Well, we'll see how, how things go here. We're going to talk about Agira today, 1972. If you haven't seen it, literally stop everything and go watch it. I mean, you know, I, I would never tell somebody to turn off this podcast, but seriously, watch this freaking movie. Um, I'm still riding the high uh, from watching it uh, earlier today. I, I had seen it before, but I had kind of forgotten about it. And then I don't know why, at some point over the past couple of weeks, it popped back into my head when we, we me and you were talking. And uh, man, I'm glad I revisited it. Um, I might wind up like reading out loud, um, large sections of the Wikipedia page. Uh, we'll see how things go as we get into this, but there's a lot of interesting, uh, stuff about this movie. Uh, before we get into the, into that, uh, we, we got to do our, um, crucial and, uh, vital and pivotal political analysis. Um, cause that's the most important thing right in the world is the presidential race. So, so your grill cleaner, what brand do you use? <laughs> I, I heard there's some chemicals that they put in some of them and you know, you, you know, like the, the super crunchy Twitter crowd, they say it's bad, but is it really that bad? I'm not a grillist myself currently, but I do watch. Ah, so what do you do to edge your flower beds? I, I do last watch. Last time I was over, I noticed. <laughs> I don't do that. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for playing along with me, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> trying to great, great improv. No, but that's that's your self indulgence is to not care about this is stupid improv. So thank you. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I guess thank I you. I did not learn yes and that's true. But I also uh, don't understand what the bit is. You're saying that uh, edging your garden and grilling are more important than the presidential race. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm saying those are important. Mm-hmm. And they also happen to be more important than the presidential race. Yeah. 
or, or, and I, I know for a fact they're more important than whoever it is I decide to vote for. I know that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be Trump and Biden. Um, it's happening. And uh, it's nothing we haven't been saying already. But, so but I guess that's how we know it's happening. Um, well, he won the primary. I mean, Trump did. Right. But how just, do we know Biden's running? It's just because of primaries. Well, Biden won the New Hampshire um, or whatever one they just had um, just now. So it's on both sides of the aisle. Like these, these things are happening right now. And that's why. That's the only reason why, I guess. I, I just, yeah. All, all this goes away when you just start being honest about what you really think about things. That's my hope for the future. Yeah, Biden won the New Hampshire primary with successful write-in campaign. I don't know. This is something that like people are up in arms about, I guess, because it's like a write-in thing. Like he wasn't there. He didn't actually participate in the primary. I don't know. Who cares? Who cares? This is, yeah, party politics. It's not as though there's any sort of rival to Joe Biden on the Democratic side for the presidential nomination. It's just not happening. And you're in a fantasy world if you're thinking otherwise. Um, or maybe I'm just missing some big glaring plot point that I haven't heard about yet, but I think I have enough of an ear to the ground to say that, like, we don't have to think about any of this uh, right now. Yeah. It just really feels like we're stuck in a loop as America. Right. Uh, But, but I imagine that must've, I mean, yeah, you know, I wasn't, I mean, I was old enough to vote for, you know, Bush, Bush, Bush. Uh, Bush 43, but that must have felt like a loop too for America. Like, oh, we're just getting this guy's son. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, I think. What, is, what uh, does that have to do with it? Nixon uh, too, right? Nick, the whole Nixon trajectory is very interesting. You know, he like rose to prominence in the 50s. He was a famous anti-communist. He was a VP under Eisenhower. Um, and then he almost beat Kennedy in the 1960 election. In fact, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, that Kennedy's mobbed up dad, like helped steal that election through some whatever nefarious means. Yeah. A lot of Uh, people just happen to think that for no reason whatsoever. Whatever the 1960 equivalent of hanging chads, uh, is, uh, that's what people think that uh, Papa Joe Kennedy was up to. But but then, you know, Nixon went away and then came back and uh, lost again. He lost the California governorship uh, in, in the meantime, also before he was elected president. And he gave this famous press conference uh, after he lost the governorship where he like basically whined to the media saying like, you're not going to have old Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Like, because this is my last press conference and basically like made like he was quitting uh, public life. Um, but then obviously came back and was, uh, uh, you know, crazy president subsequent to all of that. And I think to people back then, they probably were thinking to themselves, you know, about the time that Nixon was running for president again, after having gone through, you know, Kennedy and Johnson, they are probably thinking like, man, it really feels like America is kind of circling the drain. We have this quagmire in Vietnam. We have all this like crazy, you know, unprecedented amount of social unrest, or at least, you know, the closest precedent was like, you know, pre-Civil War. Um, Yeah. But that, you know, my dad always says that that was way worse than whatever's going on now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just this like hyper. I don't know. That's just what he says. I think it was a very volatile feeling time and not just here around the world as well. You know, the 68 in France was famously... Uh, you know, very disruptive and and crazy time with a lot of uh, political upheaval and obviously just the geopolitical stuff 
uh, nukes, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So like I, I can picture that, but I think the thing, the thing that's different between those two things is stuff me and you always go back to, which is that, um, America has not, has not succeeded at anything, you know, in like about 60 or 70 years. Whereas, you know, if this were 68, we would, you know, our, our parents would be still war heroes, you know, basically. So, or, you know, or us, I guess. Yeah, but, but now we're in 2024 and we look back and we must ask, was that even a success? Right. Right. And the best thing that you can say about, you know, like Joe Biden, for example, and I do give him credit for this. I don't want to sound like I'm not uh, uh, willing to acknowledge like a good thing when it happens. Like Biden got us out of Afghanistan, like good, you know, it was 20 years overdue, never should have happened in the first place, but it did happen. Um, so I'm not going to like ignore the fact that like a good thing happened, but it's like, even that it's like our victory is consists of you know, having the stones to leave a place, <laughs> like leave a place ruined uh, after failing there. Yeah, over it, over. I mean, we're going to be talking about Vietnam today, probably, if we're talking about Aguirre. And mm-hmm. yeah, it just reminds me of, I mean, I don't have an image of us getting out of, As- of Afghanistan, but my emotional image, Derek, is of that helicopter leaving the, the, the whatever, the uh, embassy in, yeah. in Vietnam. When we're yeah, the roof of the that, embassy. That famous photo of the helicopter. And it's just the, the impression is, get me out of here. Yeah. Like what a fiasco this was. Yeah. And that did to an extent happen in Afghanistan as well. There was this, the airport in Kabul and there were people trying to like hang on to the plane. It was actually analogous in a very yeah. uh, creepy way. Um, anyway. Um, so there's your presidential update, everybody. <laughs> Trump, Biden, get ready for Let it. Let me ask you this, Derek, because I got a question for my YouTube video and podcast this week about, well, I got the a couple of months, maybe a month or two ago, but I don't know if the, what this question was in reference to, but it was just in talking about how we are traumatized as a culture by World War One, and, and I specifically focus on World War Two. Do you ever think about that? Because in grad school, I worked with a lot of um, aging, hippie, and liberal boomers in the Upper West Side. And, you know, you don't have to dig too deep to realize, like, oh, your dads came back from the war and they had PTSD and they had alcoholism to deal with their PTSD and they abused you. Mm-hmm. And that's why you ran away from your Illinois high school when you were in 10th grade. Mm-hmm. Like, you just had to get out of there. It was like a traumatic. It was a traumatic environment. I'm not saying it's the first time that we've experienced traumatic environments because of war, but you combine that with the fact that, yeah, now you can even hitch a ride on a bus across the country. You know, like that's doable now. Mm -hmm. So that's what kids did. Mm -hmm. And that's how you got the hippie movement. And and I think we're still, you know, feeling the consequences of that. Like, you know, just the fact, I mean, wasn't uh, going into Vietnam, wasn't that like trying to reenact some trauma from World War II? You could make the uh, claim because that was the argument. Like, hey, we went in and we we defeated the Nazis. That was good. Let's go in and defeat the communists now. Yeah. I mean, there's dudes in the Ken Burns documentary who literally give that as their reason, right? Like, I grew up in this small town and all the dads around me were war heroes, uh, living in this suburban ideal and the patriotism was a real thing to us in the sense of heroism from um, defending your country or defending uh, the principles that America stands for was was very real to them and it, it was not hard um, for the deep state or the architects uh, of our post-war policy um, 
to use that for their own benefit and to, yeah, right. To, yeah. To yeah so, this so patriotism under another lens is traumatic reenactment. I, I could argue. Yeah. W- one could argue that point. Yeah. It's weird because like, it, it's so weird coming to this th- threshold of like basically talking about how America is bad and failing and dying and stuff. And then still having to kind of pull back from the edge there and remind ourselves that like, you know, there is something about America that I think I like and you like, and the world still likes, um, in principle. It's just that it's just that we're now basically a, a full lifetime's worth of history has passed where all that actually has happened, uh, in America is like a betrayal of those principles. Like it just like the, the hypocrisy of seeing like we stand for this stuff and yet like we're just kind of like sucking and failing all the time. Uh, so like, it's, it's just weird, you know? Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to be like, I, I don't want to like let it go unsaid that like, I do think there's something to appreciate about the fact that like, you know, we represent the land of the free and opportunity uh, and all that kind of stuff and prosperity um, like to the whole world. Like I don't, uh, I'm not like pretending that isn't like a real thing that means something to people uh, and a real privilege to have born here considering the other circumstances you could come from. Like I get it. That's all, that's all something to be thankful for in some sort of cosmic sense. Um, but if you ask me what my political opinions are, you know, my political opinions are basically like, I think we should accept a much lesser role uh, in trying to like architect and police world affairs uh, than we have up until this point all throughout my lifetime because we're bad at it. Yeah, but well, you're talking about two different things. I mean, we can still be seen as this beacon of freedom while not while not try to install democracy somewhere. I would say that's the antithesis of, of being a freedom, right? I mean, or, yeah. or do you mean like more like America's were like uh, the, the world's police? Yeah, it's it's the latter stuff that I'm more concerned about, but I just think it's kind of like hard to make that distinction. Like to, to my friend uh, who you met uh, this past week, um, my my Ukrainian friend who's very patriotic and very anti-Russia and very passionate about um, the importance of this current war, you know, to his family and to his homeland, like he he thinks it is a, a moral obligation of America to like sell weapons to Ukraine or maybe give weapons to Ukraine or, or whatever. And I just feel like that's one of those decisions for us to make as a country that sort of like rides that line where it's like, okay, are we do we have a role to play in this conflict because there's a matter, there, there's an issue of freedom, like a principle uh, at stake? Um, or is this commerce uh, for us? Um, or is it, you know, this more muddled thing where like, it's about the sort of like yeah. multinational Western elite, you know, of NATO, like trying to make sure that they keep a potential competing market like Russia or China um, in some sort of like enemy role uh, even if that requires like sort of contriving it. And that's not really what Russia and China are anymore. Um, the, obviously the only, the only way contriving, uh, Russia or China as some enemy role is sorry, just, just to, uh, stuff the coffers of the military industrial complex. Right. That, that's the only reason you would do that in the first place. And, yeah. and I think your, your, your friend Dennis's point, I think that's, I, I would say, Sorry if this sounds gay, but I would say that's touching that he would have that patriotism, especially what I know now, looking back at the last 70, 80 years of American foreign policy and saying, yeah, there are there is a bureaucracy 
that exists that takes advantage. I mean, what you were just talking about, people taking advantage of people's patriotic duty that mm-hmm. take advantage of that, that take advantage of saying that it's morally correct to, you know, whatever, sell weapons to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody, you know, everybody wants to talk about how the military industrial co- complex is terrible, but I, I don't want to lose the fact that it, it's not this thing that, that people just create out of thin air to turn to oppress you. It's something that grows organically and naturally when you start to say, Oh, that conflict, let's send, you know, weapons and troops over to that conflict. Cause those people are, you know, that's unfair and let's spread democracy. Yeah. Right. That's what it's born of. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to be honest about, you know, I, I like that everybody's talking about the military industrial, you know, like when Jimmy Dore does, I'll just say, I, I don't want to, when Jimmy Dore does it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Here's a really, you know, famous, popular guy doing it. But he always talks about him like these people are against you and it's the rich versus you. And, yeah, that's not really true. He makes it into this class conflict thing. And it's that's not really how it starts. You know, it's, it's not like people saying, oh, look at all these poor people we're going to take advantage of. So. Yeah. Culpability, Derek. It goes all around. Yeah. Well, how does it start then? I mean, what's the alternative explanation for the origin of this thing? Uh, the, the explanation is we feel like we need to, like, there's some conflict, right? There's some European tribal, right? Entangling, entangling alliances conflict. And there's a lot of money to be made there for weapons manufacturers. So, yeah, I mean, maybe they'll, they'll drum up some, you know, um, Consent. Um, what's the Chomsky book? Yeah, manufacturing, manufacturing consent. consent. Yeah, right, right. They'll, they'll, they'll maybe manufacture some consent to do it, but also they're going to take advantage of our. Oh well, well we got to go help those people in whatever country. Yeah. And now there's a lot of money in that. If you start selling weapons to every conflict that happens, there can potentially be a lot of money in that. And if these are obviously these are government contractors building these weapons, and yeah, it, it's very profitable, extremely profitable. I mean, just start printing money at that point. Well, we yeah. did literally start printing money at that point, so that's why what allowed us to do it in the first place. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't disagree with that. I don't know how to like disentangle the whole thing and explain like all of its origins the right way. But there's something about the fact that, you know, there's this incentive built into these systems um, that will uh, reward and uh, engender um, this sort of view of the world where it's like, we can prop ourselves up. We can make a better material position for ourselves by ensuring that there's always um, some sort of like fuel for the fire you know, some sort of other uh, to go fight. Um, And our American moral and ethical philosophical principles, uh, unfortunately, uh, can be used to to fan those flames. Um, And that doesn't mean that they're wrong in the first place. It just means that holding to them too dearly um, can wind up turning you into a sucker uh, who does stuff like, um, you know, support Vietnam and like beat up anti-war protesters um, simply because you think like that makes you a better patriot um, when really it would be more ethical uh, to kind of take a step back, forget about your Americanness, and just realize like, 
hey, this whole thing is worthless in the first place. And it's good for us to say that. Yeah, and, I wonder if there's a way to putting this because, you know, I think of foreign conflicts like World War One, you know, whatever started World War One, the entangling alliances, assassination of Archduke Francis Ferdinand. I see it, right. I always liken that to some domestic uh, abuse complaint in your neighborhood. So it's like you say, oh, we'll go help them. Oh, we'll go help this poor woman who's been beat up by this guy. Like, oh, that's, yeah, that poor woman. She doesn't deserve that. Let's send somebody to go help her. And then it's in truth, it's like, yeah, the, the woman got beat up, but also uh, she gave him herpes and uh, you're not, you know, doing the best job uh, breaking it up, nor could you do a good job breaking it up because, you know, that involves their emotional issues that go back to, you know, she had a mom who was beat up by her dad and he grew up in a household where his dad was beating up his mom. So really they're living out this thing that goes way back to before you were born and born and there's nothing you can really do to help. You can uh, provide both uh, sides with arms and armor. And if you get, uh, money to do it, then you're going to go finding conflicts, right? You're going to go finding domestic disputes. Maybe I muddled that up. I got to figure out a better way of saying that, but I think you get what I'm saying. And yeah, I do get what you're saying. And we're not there. We're not there for the domestic dispute. So if you just tell us it's going one way, we'll, we'll believe you. Except in Vietnam, now we have the technology to have cameras on the ground. And now you can't tell us it's going one way because we see what's going on. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's whatever, obviously these things are complicated, but I'm, I'm tempted to draw a lot of parallels between that same, that same analysis that I just applied to Vietnam a second ago and to our current involvement in Israel, Gaza and in Ukraine and Russia. And to just say like, you know, it's not for the same reasons. We're not trying to do that, like, you know, Cold War power play where it's important that communism not get a foothold in Southeast Asia and like all that bullshit. Like, we don't really have that to lean on anymore. But still, I mean, we do still use NATO uh, as a sort of like rationale for why it's so important to, um, you know, to keep Russia in their place, uh, in essence. And we do still uh, sort of figure out a way uh, of manipulating um, the Israel-Gaza story for people so that it feels as though somehow it's your patriotic duty uh, to to support Israel. Now, people aren't falling for it, um, which is good, right? It's heartening to see that I think there's a lot of uh, public uh, acknowledgement and discussion, more so yeah, than ever. Yeah, they you know, lied to us about the past 17 conflicts that were like right. this, so... Hmm. Right. And again, like you said, you know, there's cameras on the ground. Like, there was just one yesterday that was just, like, horrific of literally these guys waving a white flag to Israeli sh- soldiers, uh, and a journalist was interviewing them, and then when the cameraman walked away, they shot the guy dead, and they literally, like, used the white flag to, like, drape his body. So there's, like, an actual visual image of the guy's white flag like getting soaked with his own blood because they just shot him in cold blood like after the journalist walked away. Like it's really bad. And there's obviously hundreds of those stories. And I'm not saying it all goes one way. It's atrocities on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Yeah, I I get used cars salesman vibes from anybody promoting either Palestine or Israel right now in America. It's It's just... It's slimy. I don't know. I don't trust you. You're always talking about how bad the other guy is. And that's like a, a huge red flag for me. 
I mean, not that I didn't have enough red flags going. I mean, I don't need any more red flags. It's Israel-Palestine. I mean, talk about a, a tribal conflict that goes back to way before you were born, you know, taking my assault analogy. But Right. You know. There's no doubt about that. And yeah, everyone knows, like, I am definitely pro-Palestine, but I'm not trying to sell you a car here. Um, it, it's just, uh, my point in, in this context is just to say that this is another one of those conflicts where it's like, we're not going to do any good there. Nobody's going to do any good there. Uh, and so we have to reckon with that. Um, there's no good. There's no good outcome. I, I'm triggered by you saying you're pro Palestine, though. <laughs> Sorry. Pro pro America. That's it. Or no, you disagree. Um, well, only thing you can be pro is pro America. That what, what else is there? Well, I I think pro America is the right thing pro to say. Pro individualism, but that's pro America. Yeah, pro America in the sense that. I would rather redirect all effort, energy, thought, resources, analysis of this conflict. Uh, I would rather redirect that internally into, um, yeah, into a sort of like more, I have to say, just use the word like isolationist sort of view. I think we're, we're overdue for that kind of thing here. So yeah, in that sense. Yeah, totally. Isolating is fun. Yeah. Dude, you can't zone out on Twitter when you're around people. You got to be isolated if you're going to watch a movie like Agira. It's it's not party time. It's uh, serious <laughs> business, dude. It's it's nightmare time. It's it's a bad trip time. So you know Werner Herzog. We've talked about him a lot on the Brazenheads over the years. Dude, yeah, if you took a lot of drugs and watched Agira, you you would probably have a bad trip. Yeah, probably. Dude, Kinski's face. Yeah. I mean, he looks in the camera in that one oh, scene, which is amazing. But yeah, his face is, I mean, he's out of this world. There's a reason why he has this mystique as like a transcendent actor. And you, you see it right there um, on film. So yeah, this is 1972. Uh, and for all of the Herzog discussion that we've had on this show over the years, we've almost always focused on his documentary films. You know, Herzog's such an interesting filmmaker. It's not like Kubrick. It's not like Tarantino, where there's this very small, countable number of precious, perfect gems uh, of filmmaking um, that, like, each are their own, like, you know, beautiful butterfly uh, that you can analyze endlessly. Herzog made a shitload of movies, and I haven't seen most of them. Uh, we haven't seen most of them, uh, especially his fiction. He's kind of bifurcated into this amazing documentarian, um, but also this rogue fiction filmmaker who's done lots of crazy shit over the years going back decades. Um, yeah, now that you say that, I, I knew that, but now that you're saying it, I think, man, what's wrong with me? Yeah, if you look up his filmography, it's like there's a lot of stuff we have not yeah. seen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but just like scanning through it real quickly, uh, I'm, I'm not scanning anything. I'm just kind of going off, off the top of my head here. I can't really name you that many fictional Herzog movies I've seen. There's this one. Um, I saw Rescue Dawn. Um, Bad Lieutenant. Uh, Rescue Dawn was sweet. Yeah, Rescue Dawn is sweet, based on a true story, as we know. Um, yeah, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. And then he co-directed a thing. It's kind of like him and Lynch worked on it together. It's called My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? Um, I saw that once. I don't really remember it that much. Um that's about it that I can remember. But then obviously documentary wise, we've seen, you know, dozens of his documentaries. So anyway, um, this one is notable for several reasons. Um, it's the earliest of his films that I've seen. Oh, I've seen Strozek by the way, also, which is another good fictional old seventies Herzog movie, but it, it came after this one. Um, I think it came after this one. Yeah. But anyway, 
Um, this is 1972. And, you know, when we discussed Burden of Dreams in the past, the famous documentary, uh, Les Blank documentary about Herzog making Fitzcarraldo uh, in South America, it's crazy to think, like, that's 10 years after this, right? Like, Fitzcarraldo came out in 82. This is 72. Yeah. Um, and for as insane and unhinged and disorganized and chaotic as the shoot of Fitzcarraldo uh, is portrayed in that movie how like adventurous and just you know pioneering you have to be to go out and make a movie in the amazon um that's herzog with 10 years of experience under his belt when they made this movie i mean he was a really crazy young man uh and and they just did this for basically about three hundred thousand dollars. i was reading um as a mexican west german co-production you notice that a ton of the movie is dubbed um it's super low budget. It's all done on location. Yeah, it Those are felt like uh, <laughs> felt like listening to a podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you were telling me before, like at any moment you're not sure, like if someone's gonna just kill an animal on screen because it's that type of movie. It's wild. Like a time before unions, like like an Andre Rublev when that horse just falls off that second story balcony, mm-hmm. and I guess it died or something. Like yeah, you, like what? <laughs> Yeah. Let's get some regulations over here. Come on. Yeah, there's multiple times in this movie where it seems like you might be right on the verge of animal cruelty happening. I, I think it's mostly okay. Um, I think those chickens might have died at the very beginning, but it's all right. Um, I think some animals get manhandled uh, here and there, but but not killed. Anyway, I guess the point I'm just making is that... Yeah, like, like we're not going to shoot a movie. We're, we're going to have a script and there's going to be a story and I'm going to shoot it like a documentary. Yes. Yes. And the other thing that it reminds me of along those lines is, um, symbiopsychotaxoplasm, which I'm not sure if we ever actually talked about here, but you did watch that, right? I did. Yeah. Okay. What was that? Dude, I need to watch that again. I I I need to watch red Dawn again. I mean, that movie was crazy. Rescue Dawn. Rescue yeah. Dawn. I'm thinking yeah. of Red Heat. I also yeah. have to watch Red Heat again. Yeah. Red Dawn is a movie too. It's totally unrelated. That's the yeah. one where the commies invade America with Patrick yeah, Swayze. I'm, yeah, you're right. <laughs> Red Heat, Red Dawn, Rescue. Okay. Yeah. Dude, I got a lot of... Uh, By the I way, you know the guy... Man, we're going off on tangents now. You know the guy who did uh, Red Heat, the screenwriter of Red Heat? You know that's like a really famous true crime story where the screenwriter of that movie like basically went missing off of the side of the road? Uh, and it's like very suspicious, like whether maybe like the CIA might've killed him or something. Cause he was working on like, uh, movie scripts that involved like secret intelligence. Do you, have you heard that story before? No. Oh, it's crazy. That's, I got to find the guy's name really quick. Hold on. Um, shit. I, I do know Shane Black wrote Predator. Who's in that movie, sweet? Yeah, that is a good movie. <laughs> Sorry. You want tangents. I got them for you. The guy that I'm thinking of is, um, oh shit, no, Red Heat is Walter Hill. That one's fine. What's the other, oh damn it, now I have to look it up. What's the other Schwarzenegger? Red Sonia? No. That's the, what you're thinking of. No, it's the other Schwarzenegger cop movie that isn't Red Heat. Uh, fuck, let me look up his filmography. Okay, this is a, this is a tangent, everybody, but this it's, it's worth it, believe me. Arnold Schwarzenegger filmography red heat uh oh maybe i'm thinking of raw deal oh yeah there's red sonia too that's funny the guy that i'm thinking of is the guy who wrote um raw deal his name is gary devore d-e-v-o-r-e uh and if you look up gary devore 
uh, and read about his case sometime. It's very interesting. He was like, yeah, this hotshot screenwriter who was on his way up and he was doing stuff that involved like spies in the CIA or whatever. And he was out on like a writing trip uh, and he called his wife and like he, he like he called his wife on the phone before he was about to drive back home. And it was like this crazy phone call where like he just wasn't acting like normal and she could tell that something was wrong. Uh, and he never came home and then they found his car, but like the way that his car like was crashed on the side of the road was super suspicious looking. Like it was just like an unnatural crime scene. There's a really good podcast about it called witnessed fade to black. Uh, it's a little podcast mini series where they interview the wife and go over the case and stuff. It's wild. Anyway, total tangent. <laughs> Well, speaking in 1972, I was going to make the point, okay, so this came out, I mean, right towards the end of Vietnam. I mean, it was that what Herzog was thinking. I mean, I, I know this is like Apocalypse Now, and that's about Vietnam. Yeah, well, certainly and this movie is a big influence. Now is like Heart of Darkness. I mean, that must have been something going on, or was Germany not involved? Fill me in, Derek. Yeah, I mean, know. Germany was not so involved, but this was definitely a huge influence on Apocalypse Now, no doubt about it. And I guess to set that up a little bit, I'll just talk about the movie real briefly. So like you said, this is basically Herzog in 1972 as like this crazy young artist. He wrote this script. He describes it as being written in basically a frenzy. That's a quote, in a frenzy. Uh, he wrote the script in two and a half days. Um, they went out and filmed in the Amazon for about five weeks for about $300,000. And it was tense, you know, like the, the cast and crew obviously are not comfortable. You know, this movie is like one of those things like symbiopsychotaxoplasm, where it's like the cast of the movie, it, it, it's almost like the movie, although it's fictional, is partially like a documentary of the ordeal these people must have had to go through in order to make this movie, um, because it really is all on location, like in the middle of the Amazon under very difficult conditions. Okay, so let's summarize the movie really like briefly, jumping off of that. It's a historical epic uh, set in 1560 about a group of Spanish explorers led by Pizarro um, who were, you know, hanging out in South America making various conquests. Uh, and the setup for the movie, I'll just read the scroll. It has like a Star Wars scroll at the beginning of the movie. After the Spaniards had conquered and sacked the Inca realm, the sorely oppressed Indians invented the legend of a golden kingdom, El Dorado. Its alleged location was in the impenetrable bogs of the Amazon tributaries. Near the end of the year 1560, a large expedition of Spanish adventurers under the leadership of Gonzalo Pizarro set off from the Peruvian Sierras. The only document to survive from this lost expedition is the diary of the monk Gaspar de Carva Carvajal. Um, so he's a character in the movie. He's the monk that's on the expedition. And we see this group of explorers basically descend the mountain, uh, descending through the clouds, as he says uh, in the intro of this movie, uh, from the from the steppe, from the Sierras, uh, down into the, the Amazon uh, riverbeds. And, um, and that's like the setup for the movie. Andes? Yes, I thought Sierra was the name of like a type of a landscape, not the proper noun, but like the descriptor ah. of the, maybe that's not correct. Perhaps it is. Okay. I'm not sure. Touche, Derek. But yeah. So I was a little bit uh, confused by this. So they're going from west to east. Uh, I guess Which I, I would have know. assumed they're going from east to west. 
I think right? they're... I, well, I, I read a thing on Wikipedia that said that his original ending of the movie is that um, in the original ending, um, Agira actually reaches the ocean, but then the currents bring him right back into land. So that would be like the outlet of the Amazon into the Atlantic, I assume, right? Like, so that yeah, would be... Yeah, so they're going from west to east. Yeah, that's what I would... So they must but, have but, come wait a minute, around but, the Andes and back down. But Peru is but Peru is on the west side of South America, though. So maybe right. I'm wrong about that. So it's the outlet into the Pacific. Uh, yeah, but if they're going from west to east, then it'd be, the outlet would be the Atlantic. I mean, the the Amazon dumps into the Atlantic. Yeah. Okay. Right. So they they leave Peru basically. Yeah. They're they're depart yeah. Peru. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, the guys that you know the the slaves that they have on the ship are Peruvians. I mean, they, they clearly got just some Peruvian dudes. Yeah. You know, they even they I, even mentioned Saxe Holman, which was pretty cool. Oh, dude, did they? Did I write <laughs> that down? Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like in Apocalypto when Mel Gibson just goes goes down there. He just gets guys from a fishing village. Yeah. I'm such a great director. I just get fishing village guys. I mean, they just look they, they look like indigenous people. You got to get them. They just have a different look in their eye. Mm-hmm. He does that in Fitzgerald. In uh, Burden of Dreams, we see the yeah, same thing. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so they're on this. They're, they're trying to find the lost city of gold. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's at a high level. It's the story of basically the, the the setup to the movie is so good. Like the beginning of the movie is so strong because first of all, you have this amazing sequence of them descending through the clouds. There's this like rock staircase that's carved into the the mountain, which is just incredible. Uh, so, so they had a helicopter for that. So there's like a helicopter shot of, yeah, and like, you know, the real, you know, cast, like in their, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, costume, period costumes with all the period gear, like carrying cannons and wagon yeah. wheels and shit, like going down this treacherous, you know, stone staircase in the side of a mountain, like wreathed in fog. It's like so awesome looking. It has this great ambient music. This is a German ambient band called Popol Vuh, just they're kind of famous in sort of that tangerine dream uh you know brian eno ambient world um amazing like synth soundtrack to this movie um but as soon as so the whole point of that is like the movie starts off with this like leaving you know one world and entering another you know right they've been conquering these highlands uh, of peru and now for the first time they're going into the the heart of darkness right they're going into the jungle and immediately they're fucked. Like the, the the movie does such a good job at the very beginning of just showing how you you can't be a conquistador down here. Like the swamp will just eat you alive. Like immediately they're stuck in the mud. They're not making any progress. They're running out of food. They're dying of disease. Yeah, you know, their slaves that they captured from up on the highlands can't survive uh, down here in in the wilderness. Um, and it's just immediately desperate. Um, and I just think the movie does a really good job of just depicting those stakes um yeah, it's kind of like robert eggers just put people as close to a situation where people at that time would have been in and then just film them mm-hmm. and yeah i mean you're right that opening sequence i mean even i noticed that that looks sweet yeah um so pizarro decides we're screwed here um, they're, you know, they have like hundreds of slaves with them. It's a huge, uh, conquering party that, that's been traveling here. And he says, I've made the decision to take 40 men, uh, and send them down the river on rafts. Um, and they need to either, you know, find word of El Dorado, uh, or food, 
uh, or hostile Indians, uh, just like something, you know, because we're just trudging through the jungle, making no progress and slowly dying here. He's, and he sets a time frame and he says that if they don't return, they'll be presumed dead and, and we'll backtrack, you know, to where we came from because there's, there's no hope here otherwise. Um, and so that's sort of the setup to the whole thing. And then from there, um, you know, Agira portrayed by Klaus Kinski is the second in command uh, of this 40 person exploration party. Uh, and it's sort of the story of him. Um, uh, I don't know. How would you describe it being this sort of like lunatic? He's Tammany Hall. Yeah. <laughs> He's the wrath He's of God. He's Tammany Hall running the operation behind the scenes and just obsessed with finding the city of golden and how he, he becomes crazy and, He's just going to kill everybody. Yeah. It's so obvious. He's from the beginnings, he's going to kill everybody. And that's exactly what happens. And it's just a really fun portrayal. I mean, like I was saying, like you, you're on the boat with them. Yeah. And I'm going to be an old man about this. I think this is where we would not see a movie like this today because there's just a lot of long drawn out shots with not a lot of cuts. Mm-hmm. And I, I, but I think that's the kind of, um, that's what this movie needs to be to, to really make you, uh, you know, feel like you're there and to feel the nightmare. It almost never happens in a movie that you would see nowadays. I mean, I can't think of an example at all, like not even Eggers or anybody. I really cannot think of the most recent example uh, of a fiction film where when you're watching it, you're thinking to yourself, you're thinking to yourself, setting aside the story setting aside like suspension of disbelief uh, and like being absorbed into the plot or whatever, I'm watching this fiction movie and I'm just, I'm just amazed the footage exists in the first place. It's right. like, like the fact that they're able to even get these shots, uh, yeah. for, forget about the fact that it's even a story. It's just incredible. And that's why like the, the when they first set, set off on the rafts, it's a very memorable sequence. Um, you know, this, this 40 person raft voyage is obviously doomed also, as you just said. Uh, and basically the first thing that happens, like as soon as you see them on these rafts, um, they're in these insane rapids. Uh, and it really is just hard to comprehend that they really did this, that these actors were really out there on the Amazon, <laughs> like doing this. Um, yeah. it's, it's not CGI, you know, there's not a, uh, union, like you said, there's not like, uh, ambulances standing by, they're out in the Amazon. And um, one of them gets caught. Uh, this is part of the plot. It, this was not like a, an accident that happened. Um, but one of them gets caught in this sort of like eddy and they can't move. They're stuck on the other side of the river and they can't break out of the, the currents. They call it a backlash. Um, and that footage, like I was saying, is just insane. It's just like it, it doesn't really even matter about the plot. It's just that you're watching this movie and it's like every every foot of film that Herzog was able to actually capture and develop and print and put into this movie just feels precious, like so much effort and adventuring uh, and like sort of conquering in its own way, artistic conquering uh, had to happen in order for him to be even able to like capture this, you know, on celluloid. Um, so it's kind of cool. It's like this two level thing where it's like you're watching a story about these conquerors failing but the ability to depict them in such a great way is like a, a triumph. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the jungle conquered the conquistadors. 
But not forever. Europeans yeah. came back and conquered it with our celluloid. Yeah, right, exactly. Deal with it. Yeah. Oh, oh, so so those guys were stuck in an eddy, so then they rescued him, right? Then they helped him out. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, so um, I guess, yeah, to kind of like continue surveying the plot, like the, those guys on the raft, like overnight, the the leader of the expedition, this this sort of, um, what would you call him? The, the sort of like um, Chad uh, of the 40-man expedition, Don Pedro, um, his yeah. his first Ursa. name is his first name is Orsua, Ursua. Ursua, yeah. I guess like Bear, right? Is that like yeah. Ursus? Yeah. Um, he decides like, okay, we got to go send a rescue party, and immediately Agira is like, nope, bad idea. And by the way, before that, even Agira at first off says like, you can't send men down this river. Like this is a stupid idea. Um, but sure enough, they do it, and um, so like they're going to send these this rescue party, but by the time they get there. Um, overnight back in the camp, um, some shots go off. Something has happened on that raft. And when they get there the next morning, uh, most of the men are dead. One of them and the Indian oarsmen uh, are missing, um, but everybody else on that stuck raft is dead. And so then Orsua is like, okay, well, we need to give them a Christian burial. You know, we need to send people to go retrieve their bodies uh, from this like violent uh, back current in, in the river. And again, Aguirre is like, no, that's a stupid idea. Like we got to keep moving. And, uh, and yeah, like you said, like Tammany Hall, he contrives to have one of his little underlings uh, accidentally quote unquote, fire the cannon and blow up the raft. Oops. Oops. Uh, I guess that solves that problem. We don't have to go. Recover oh, I, the body. I guess you're voting for either this Irish guy or this other <laughs> Irish guy. Oh, well, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, it's it's an entire movie of somebody making plans or doing something that Aguirre doesn't want, and then it cuts to Aguirre's face, and he gives you this crazy maniacal look like he's going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you guys are so screwed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's just nothing you can do about it. Yeah, there's just so many haunting things in this movie. Like, yeah, I, I, I you're right. You know, when I'm watching uh the conquistadors go up on land and, and try to find food and fight off indians i think okay at some point uh spanish or uh, went down the amazon river and at some point they got off the raft and attacked the the native indians mm-hmm. it's like this is what it would look like yeah it's it, like this is it's not doesn't feel like a movie at all that's I think that's really important to to capture just how horrific this is. And yeah, just so many haunting things happen like that. Yeah, it's weird to think that like, in a sense, you could interpret this as like, you could think about it like it was a documentary of what 1560 looked like. You know, we think about the past, we think about it in black and white, and we think like everyone is proper and like Barry Lyndon, right? Like using the right verbiage and twirling their mustaches and, you know, all clean and proper and stuff. But like, you know, this movie is much more like, I don't know, realistic in some sort of specific way. And um, okay, the next thing that I wanted to get to was this one little allegory or allusion uh, to Psalm 90 from the Bible, which I didn't really know about, but I just kind of Googled it while I was watching this. So the scene that happens next, but so setting this up, one of the things that's, that's the most ridiculous uh, and kind of drives home the point of how doomed and stupid this expedition is at the beginning of the movie is that when they first are getting stuck in the jungle um they have four of the slaves carrying uh the the uh bride to be the the fiance uh of uh uh yeah. ursua or ursua um in like one of those 
carriages. I don't know what that thing is called, but like where it's on sticks and she's like sitting in a seat, like with a veil over her. <laughs> but they're like carrying her through this jungle. Like she's almost like falling yeah. off the thing. They're stuck in a swamp. It's ridiculous. Um, and it's, it's, it's intended to be ridiculous. It's like, what is the point of this? Okay. So this, this, this fiance, this, uh, proper lady is with them, uh, on the voyage. And, um, after the whole incident with the raft, uh, and, and after the revolt happens, and the next thing that sort of happens is that they, they kind of, you know, Agira kind of contrives to have the men on the expedition uh, revolt against uh, uh, Ursua, um, and they shoot him. Uh, he's not dead, he's injured, um, but, but they sort of, they revolt against him. It's a mutiny. Um, and so mm -hmm. now uh, Agira is kind of in charge, but actually they elect this other oaf, uh, to be like their nominal emperor and, and Guzman, Guzman. Yeah. And that's so that like, yeah, a, I mean, that's why I say it like, uh, Agira wouldn't elect himself. Right. You put right. this other guy who he could control. That's why I say Tammany Hall. Exactly. It's all like a sort of, yeah, political contrivance. So that way it's not Agira's name that is on the, you know, signed document that rebels them against the Spanish empire and, and all that stuff. Um, but anyway, um, so this is all unfolding, and, and the fiancé uh, of the injured um, former leader of the expedition goes to the priest for help. Uh, and she says, you know, you're the only one who can help us now. Uh, Agira will surely kill Ursua and Armando, who is Ursua's sort of lieutenant, the, the other sort of like loyal um, mm -hmm. uh, to the Habsburgs, you know, loyal guy in the party. Uh, and the priest has this very interesting response um, and I didn't know what the hell he was saying, but it turns out when I Googled it, he's quoting from Psalm 90, uh, from the book of Psalms in the Bible. Uh, and he gives this quote about, um, how like basically, basically how like, you know, God is man's shelter, uh, and, and he turns us away, uh, into the world, uh, and we live within the wrath of God. It, it's very, to me, it's very cryptic. I'm not good at like reading and understanding the Bible, but the takeaway is that he says, quote, the church has always been on the side of the strong. Um, and so she's like offended and withdraws her hand and walks away. In other words, he's basically saying like, look, my job here is to be pragmatic. I'm trying to go like convert heathens to Christianity. Uh, so if this guy Agira is going to lead everyone down the river and do that, then the only thing that I can do is stick with him. Uh, it's not doing my mission any good uh, to try to be loyal to your dying leader who's already been overthrown. Right? Is that your interpretation of that? Uh, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, mean, I didn't really have an interpretation before you said it. I mean, he's rejecting he's rejecting her request for help, basically, right? Right, right yeah. I, I mean, and that's when she walks out into the woods, right? Or she, no, that's, that's uh, later. It's not that early. Yeah, right? that, that's later. But well, yeah, first they they kill him. Yeah, but but basically, like you know, she's saying like you're supposed to be the representative of morality here, and surely it's obvious that the correct moral side to take here uh, is to stick with the designated leader uh, of this expedition, uh, just like what Pizarro and thus you know by proxy you know the emperor uh, would have wanted, and the priest is just like you know. He's, he's the pragmatic one. He's like, no, like I'm going with the guy who has the guns on his side. Um, and that's what, that's what God would do too. That's what God would want me to do. So I was thinking like, man, what is Psalm 90? Um, so I looked it up here. Um, it's the only Psalm that's ascribed to Moses uh, in the, in the book of Psalms, apparently. I don't know if that's important or not, but it is. Um and it says, I won't read the whole thing. It's kind of long, but I'll read the beginning because that's what he says in the movie. Um, it says, 
Lord, you have been our refuge throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or the earth and the world were born, from age to age, you are God. You turn mortals back to dust, saying, Turn back, you children of mortals, for in your sight a thousand years are as the passing of one day, or as a watch in the night. You cut them off, they are asleep in death, they are like grass which shoots up. Though in the morning it flourishes and shoots up, by evening it droops and withers. We are brought to an end by your anger, terrified by your wrath. The wrath of God, right? You set out your iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass under your wrath. Our years die away like a murmur. Seventy years is the span of our life, eighty if our strength holds. At their best they are but toil and sorrow, for they pass quickly and we vanish. Who feels the power of your anger? Who feels your wrath like those who fear you? So make us know how few are our days, that our minds may learn wisdom. It goes on, but, you know, I think the takeaway is supplication, right? It's this thing saying, like, you know, God, you are everything. You know, we just live in your habitat. Um, You create our lives. You take our lives away. It's all in a blink of an eye for you. Um, And only thing we can ask is for you to help us understand um, because, you know, without that, our lives are nothing but um, disappointing you and experiencing your wrath. I thought it was relevant to read that because, again, you know, the subtitle of this movie is The Wrath of God. Uh, Agira is going to use the phrase, The Wrath of God, later on as he goes crazy. Uh, and I think it's important to try to, I don't know, figure out what Herzog is really talking about here. Well, it seems like, yeah, Lord, you've been here since the beginning and we're afraid of you, except when you're going down the Amazon river and you got Klaus Kinski all up in your face, mm-hmm. then he's the wrath of God. Right. Right. And the, the people on and everybody going with them, they're, they're subject to it and there's nothing they can do about it. Yeah. So, so in order to get to that, I guess, I think I should maybe like rip through this plot synopsis, like really quickly, you know, we have this big oaf who gets sort of elected as the new leader. They decide to keep doing, going down the river. Um, there's a lot of little side avenues that are very cool and interesting. There's one shot of like a baby sloth uh, that is amazing. Um, there's a whole like kind of side thing where Agira has his daughter with him. Um, you know, much like the lady betrothed, uh, who he mentioned a minute ago, she's the other like maiden on this voyage. And he's always, yeah, who Pizarro said he did not recommend. Right, right. And Agira is, recommend either of the women go. It's always, yeah. Why did they go? Well, Right. I guess just makes the movie more interesting, but and well, and I guess there is kind of like a a crazy reason too, because well, anyway, we'll get to that later. But we, for now, suffice to say that Agira is like kind of always crazy and conniving uh, in a very like Richard the Third kind of way. But um, when he's with his daughter, he's always like you know comforting her and making sure she's okay and like consoling her and holding her hand or entertaining her with a baby sloth or whatever. He cherishes her. Um, okay, so they draft their official document to rebel against the empire. Um, they hold a trial to condemn the former leader Ursua because Agira wants him dead. Um, but in order, you know, for him to be dead, like we need to like, you know, do justice and actually like have a public trial. So there can't be any complaint about it. Um, they see a burning village on the shore, you know, and they're worried that it might be an ambush. Um, so they go like invade, they, they go like, uh, you know, investigate that village and they don't really find anybody. Um, but they see a lot of like bones and skulls and they get spooked because it looks like there were cannibals, uh, living there. 
Um, They continue to go down the river and then they see some other natives on the shore. Um, It's, it gets eerily still all of a sudden. And then the horse, the horse that is wearing Imperial garb, it looks like a jousting horse. Um, And it's been floating on the raft with them this whole time, uh, which is very weird. Um, It starts kicking uh, and like getting, anxious because it's all it's like so eerily quiet uh and a, a barrel of gunpowder is set on fire uh and and um yeah agira throws it off and it explodes and then one of the crew members uh is found dead with a poison arrow in his neck so there's natives on the shore that are that are firing upon them um, unseen um and then some uh, natives come by in a canoe uh and they're um what do you call it they're, they're friendly they're 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 they say that it's been foretold uh, that that people would come from far away, the sons of the sun would come from far away and be able to make clouds and thunder noises out of tubes. Uh, and he has a gold pendant. That's um, like, wow, you know, some help. This guy can point us towards where the gold is and he's friendly to us and blah, blah, blah. And right away, the priest tries to convert him to Christianity and he makes one false move. He says that he can't hear the word of God uh, in the Bible, and they immediately kill him. The priest immediately <laughs> runs him through with his dagger. And then the narrator, it's very comedic, the narrator uh, says, the way will be hard. These savages are difficult to convince. <laughs> comedic beat there in a grim way. So yeah, we're continuing down the river, and just the vibes are getting worse and worse uh, as we go, right? We have this oaf that we elected as emperor. He's eating all the food. Everybody else is starving, there comes a point where he orders the horse to be pushed off the raft, um, which is Not like the horse, which is really grim. Um, and yeah, it, somehow more grim than the girl walking in, into the forest alone. Right. That was pretty grim too. Yeah. That's coming up in just a little bit here, but, but yeah, you know, the horse It's important to remember from a historical perspective, like the, they kept that horse in that garb for a reason is because that's scary as shit to the natives. Uh, and they, they mentioned that in the movie that like when, Cortez conquered Mexico. One of the reasons he was able to get natives to defer to him uh, is that they had horses, and that was just not known uh, to yeah. the natives. It's just like having an alien, you know, at your disposal, or it just makes you seem like a uh, yeah, I mean, demigod it must or really scary. Yeah, and it's horses also are big. It's also the same reason why uh, the expedition carries a black slave with them. Uh, in fact, the next village that they raid, they keep the black slave in front because they think it will help, like, scare away. Yeah. Um, the natives uh, just seeing a black person um well can we feel your hair yeah exactly <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like one of those things yeah um they find the the oaf emperor dead you know someone has decided to kill him because he's just screwing them all over we never find out who did that but you know obviously it's just but but that's how it would be that, that he would just be dead yep and then that's how it goes yeah yep exactly uh, so now that he's dead, um, it's kind of like Agira is in charge and there's no reason for Horsua uh, to remain alive. Uh, so they take him off under the shore in a canoe and hang him. Um, and and uh, Agira's lieutenant, this creepy dude, uh, is there for the hanging and he recites this little poem. It's kind of interesting. I couldn't find any sort of attribution to this poem. I think Herzog made this up. It says, little mother two by two wafts the wind all my hair. No idea what that is, but it's just, hmm. it's, it's interesting. I don't know. It's just a little poetry from, from Herzog. Um, I don't know. To me, as like the two by two was sort of like suggestive of the fact that like they're all kind of dying, like in dribs and drabs. 
uh, as the raft goes down the river. I don't know, raft, wafts. There's like some uh, verbal symmetry there. I don't know. Um, yeah, but is it the same in German? I don't know. I don't know. But I, this movie was originally released in English. Like the dubbing that we're seeing is how it was screened um, originally. So, oh, okay. yeah, that's a weird thing about the making of this movie too. Like some of the actors are clearly speaking in their native language and are just dubbed into English. Uh, and it was not an English movie, um, but it was always released in English. Um, it's weird. Yeah. The, the sound, I don't know what you'd call it. The sound mixing is very strange. Yeah. It's like, yeah. just like you're listening to a podcast. Yeah. It's low it's, budget. Everybody's voice is right in your, right in your ears. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're getting to the end here. But I mean, what that's, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, we're getting we're getting to the end here. There's there's another raid on another Indian village, and this is the time when uh, Ursua's bride, you know, that her husband has been dragged away and hanged, and they're just getting picked off by natives one by one. When they pass by this village, uh, their translator tells them that the people on the shore said fresh meat is passing by, um, and so when she gets on shore, she just walks into the jungle in this sort of like hypnotic daze. And they just kind of watch her go, like you said, very. Which maybe she can find some uh, single uh, indigenous guy. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll be your wife. Yeah, I'm sure she'll be I fine. Mean, that's what I would do if I was her. Yeah. Right. I mean. Yeah. Wash her clothes. I don't know. Um. So yeah, they they sort of like raid this village. A couple more of them get killed. You know, shot by arrows and stuff like that. And then there's one man who's thinking of of bailing uh, on the party. They overhear him saying like, "Oh." I've been counting the twists and turns of the river and um, you know, me and you can just go back by land Uh, here. I've drawn a map down here in the sand, you know, here's turn one, here's turn two. And he's like counting through these things. And as he counts through his little map on the sand, uh, Agira's Lieutenant uh, sneaks up behind him and beheads him. And it's a, it's a really awesome shot because he cuts his head off and then like he's counting in the middle of getting beheaded. And then it shows his uh, severed head saying 10, like finishing off the counting right after he's beheaded. It's awesome. Which probably what happens when you get your head cut off. Yeah. You heard about that one experiment that guy was going to get his head yes. cut off. And he's like, I'm just going to see how many times I can blink. He tried to blink. There's like 23 times. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and then right after that is sort of like the pivotal kind of summation or whatever you would call it, like the quintessential moment of the movie. And that's where Agira gives his speech uh, to the you know remaining uh, members of the party uh, about how, you know, no one else is going to betray. No one else is going to walk away uh, from this or else the, the punishment will be as severe as, as what you just saw happen to that guy. He says, if I, Agira, want the birds to drop dead from the trees, then the birds will drop dead from the trees. And then he looks straight into the lens of the camera and says, I am the wrath of God. The earth I pass will see me and tremble. And it is fucking chilling. I mean, like Klaus Kinski is... Oh man, like I said, there's a reason why he is like a mythological, uh, you know, titan of acting. It's he's insane in this movie. Dude, I really like the turnaround that he does. So that they they sentence Ursua to death, mm-hmm. but then Guzman, the, the leader, he grants some clemency. Mm-hmm. And I really love the the turnaround that Agira gives that Kinski gives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Klinsky, excuse me, Klaus Kinski, yeah, or Klinsky, Kinski. Kinski. Mm-hmm. It's like the super dramatic, like not even trying to have a poker face about it. Right. 
there, there's several of those, and it's just very creepy. He does this thing where he kind of walks backwards, like he's arched back too much. Yes. And he, he turns around that way. I don't know if it's like some 16th century thing. Yeah, his whole body uh, like is a, like, like contorted. A gentleman would, would walk like that. Yeah, he walks with a crazy limp, like a hunchback, or like just this like weird contorted thing throughout the whole movie. And I, and I don't know why. It's just part of the character. It's It's distinctive. But it's reversed hunchback. He's looking up. Yeah. Right. It's like he's just kind of tilted up the entire time and, and makes his turnaround very, uh, it's just very creepy. Yeah. He punches a horse. Remember that? Yep. I'm like, oh, is that where they got it in Blazing Saddles, right? Because that was the first when Mongo punches the horse. I thought, I bet Mel Brooks was a, a Herzog fan. It could be. It very well could yeah, be. Yeah, that this influenced Apocalypse Now. It also influenced Blazing Saddles. <laughs> yeah, when he yells, get out of my way at the horse, that's another funny moment. He's just raging. Um, I mean, so this is it. I mean, this is basically the plot of the movie. But, but you know, how is this all going to end? You know, what is it all leading up to? Well, basically, they just continue to float aimlessly down the river. Um, the, the narrator, the priest at one point even says that they're just drifting in circles. Uh, it reminded me of the Blair Witch Project where it's just like the scariest part of the Blair Witch Project is when they realize that they spent all of this time oh, <laughs> and they no, just got back dude. to the same place that they were at like a week ago or oh, whatever. Dude. And you're just like, Oh, it just like chills you. Um, dude. and it just, yeah, it reminded me of that sort of feeling. And yeah, they just, they just all gradually die. You know, they're, they're too weak. They're getting picked off. They're starving. Um, and uh, basically, at a certain point, almost everybody has been killed. The raft is kind of uh, rammed into the shoreline at one point, and all of these monkeys, uh, these tiny little spider monkeys or whatever they are, have climbed aboard the raft. And it's sort of like it's sort of like they're Agira's new legions, like in his psychotic, grandiose state, surrounded by death and going mad. Like now he thinks like, oh, these are my new underlings. Like, you know, they'll, is, didn't this happen in the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons where like the, he was surrounded by monkeys at one point or what, what yeah, episode was that? Civil War reenactment yes, that's what it was. Yes. It's kind of like that. Um, huh. And so he. A lot, lot of influences from this movie. So he gives a speech at the end. That I wrote this down. This is the last thing I'll quote verbatim. Um, so he, he, obviously like everyone's dead. Oh, by the way, his daughter gets shot, right. And like dies in his arms, uh, which is important. Um, yeah, everyone's getting, uh, picked off from the shoreline by these natives. And, and we see her sort of like standing and looking peacefully into the yeah. distance. We pretty much never see the natives by the way. Right. It's awesome. Right. Um, but yeah, but she's actually been shot. Uh, and yeah, she dies in his arms and he, he essentially has no reaction to it. Um, he says, and then like, he's walking around with these monkeys, uh, and he says in his head, uh, he's saying, when we reach the sea, we'll build a bigger boat and with it, we'll sail North and take Trinidad away from the Spanish crown. From there, we'll go on and take Mexico from Cortez. What a great betrayal that will be. We will then control all of new Spain and we will stage history as others stage plays. I, the wrath of God, will marry my own daughter, and with her found the purest dynasty ever known to man. Together we will rule the whole of this continent. Who else is with me? And he picks up a monkey and looks at it and says, like, the wrath of God, who else is with me? And then throws the monkey aside. It's crazy. It's just so wild. Um, and I guess it just, uh, I don't know, portrays the heights of, uh, 
you know, not just insanity, but also like the, the conquering impulse, like that, that, that wrath of God that is in man. Keeping it in the family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you threw that monkey, like did, did that monkey get hurt? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like that's something that you would not see in the movie in the year that it is. I don't think you would. Just some guy throwing a monkey. Yeah, that monkey also poops and all while those he's monkeys it. on that raft. It just is does not look like. Yeah, it's it's like I'm being. Um, uh, I feel like I'm being like a lawyer or something. Well, did you notice in that there there should be some regulations here? Well, they were clearly trying to get a shot where he was able to basically swoop down and and scoop up a monkey. Um, they were trying to get that shot. So there's there's a lot of footage of him kind of like stomping around the raft. Um, with these like groups of monkeys kind of evading him. And did you notice in the one shot, like a bunch of them one by one jump off of the raft and you can actually see the monkeys like fly up in the air, jump off the raft and swim and they swim towards the shore. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, that footage is crazy. Um, oh, I thought you had like, oh, here's how they did it. No, no, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking they must have had food somewhere. Yeah. They just put food in key places to get the monkeys. I mean, that's the only way you could have done it. I guess. Yeah. And, and the monkeys seem to be congregated around certain parts. I'm sure that's where they put, you know, the piles of bananas. Yeah. Uh, it's just so, I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's like the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre or just those, those other little moments that stick with you. I just, the ending of this movie to me, just like it strikes a really good memorable poignant kind of uh image or whatever i just i just remember him just like basically sinking with all these monkeys just completely insane uh and thinking that he's gonna conquer spain it's wild very relatable mm -hmm. and he still has his boots on mm-hmm not taking those boots off yeah you know the only time he ever takes off his helmet in the whole movie is when they actually go raid the village like the one time when they actually are essentially doing battle is the only time that he took <laughs> off his armor. I think that was on purpose too. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're going to be conquistadors. Those guys are wearing conquistadors. Well, I'm sure they, I mean, it's good protection, right? Yeah. Not comfortable. All right. So that's basically, I mean, it's crazy that guys would have, you know, would have done something like that. I mean, just let's just go down this river. Yeah. Oof. Yep. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt did it. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt did. I mean, but that was, you know. He almost I mean, died. Yeah, I mean, it's still a harrowing feat, but this is, you have no idea. Yeah, that was 400 years what later. What is this country? You have no idea. Mm -hmm. um, the only other thing that I had written down, which is, I think, unanswered, unless I missed it, is uh, what was Ursula holding in his hand? I mean, they make a big deal out of that at several points of the movie that ever since he's uh, mutinied against, um, Ursula has had something gripped into his fist and no one has been able to see what it is and he won't say. He never speaks for the whole rest of the movie. Um, and we never find out. We don't even find out when they hang him. It, it kind of reminded me of the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. It's like, what is that? What, what's, what does it mean? It symbolizes something. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I remember that you talk about something like that but I, but i for, forgot honestly yeah i don't when they when they hanged him i i wasn't even thinking about yeah that. i don't think they ever answer that question i think it's left a mystery and it's just one of those little uh i don't know one of those little intriguing flourishes to the movie i'm saying i wasn't even asking the question yeah i really i, I mean i wasn't even thinking much while i was watching this movie it was just like the emotional impact of everything and 
you know, speckled with, oh, I hope that horse is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just threw that monkey. I mean, you know, I feel some relation there, mm-hmm. some kinship. Yeah, great movie. I mean, um, yeah, you know, I, I really just, you know, these Derek movies, I really got to watch twice. I know I've said that before, and I'm probably still not going to watch these twice, but I feel like, you know. Anyway. You want to hear a little bit from the Wikipedia page before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, what are you looking at? I'm looking at the uh, production section of the Wikipedia page, giving a little bit of discussion about the making of the movie. And I'm looking at the wiki quote page, so let me know if you want to hear anything. Okay. Um, yeah, so first of all, it talks about like where they filmed, you know, like which rivers and tributaries in Peru they were in. Pretty interesting. Yeah, shot in five weeks. I mentioned that before. It says, all of the actors spoke their dialogue in English. The members of the cast and crew came from 16 countries, and English was the only common language among them. Uh, in addition, Herzog felt that shooting Aguirre in English would improve the film's chances for international distribution. However, the small amount of money that had been set aside for post-synchronization, quote, left Peru with the man in charge of the process, both absconded en route. The English language track was ultimately replaced by a higher quality German language version, which was post-synced after the production was completed. Herzog claims that Kinski requested too much money for the dubbing session, and so his lines were performed by another actor. That's confusing to me because, like I said a minute ago, the only version of this movie that I know of is actually in English. Um, So I was surprised to read that. Maybe I'm wrong about that. If anybody knows more, uh, let, let us know the brazenheads podcast at gmail.com. The other thing that I saw here was to obtain the monkeys used in the climactic sequence, Herzog paid several locals to trap 400 monkeys. He paid them in advance and was to pay the other half upon receipt. The trappers sold the monkeys to someone in Los Angeles or Miami, and Herzog came to the airport just as the monkeys were being loaded to be shipped out of the country. He pretended to be a veterinarian and claimed that the monkeys needed vaccinations before leaving the country. Abashed, the handlers handed the monkeys over to Herzog, who used them in the shot they were required for, and then released them afterwards into the jungle. Wow. Thinking on his feet there. The camera used to shoot the film was stolen by Herzog from the Munich Film School. Herzog later recalled, quote, It was a very simple 35mm camera, one I used on many other films, so I do not consider it a theft. For me, it was truly a necessity. I wanted to make films and needed a camera. I had some sort of natural right to this tool. If you need air to breathe and you are locked in a room, you have to take a chisel and hammer and break down a wall. It is your absolute right. There you go. Oh, yeah. There's the artist right there. You do it, and, and you better defend yourself, yep. and it just sounds like you did a great job. Yep. So anyway. Yeah, how about this quotation? Yeah. On this river, God never finished his creation. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, I like this one. I was a prince in this land, and my people had looked to the ground. No one was allowed to look in my into my eyes. My people are in chains, just like me, and now I must look at the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of those little side things that I glossed over before. That's a scene where one of the slaves is talking to uh, Aguirre's daughter and explaining how, like, yeah, actually, before the Spaniards came, like, I was a prince, uh, and I ruled my people, and no one was was allowed to look at me, and now I'm a slave. Um, very interesting. Easy come, easy go. 
it's just such an awesome movie. It's a nice tight 90 minutes, by the way. It's like 94 minutes. I know. Isn't that nice? It's so good. Um, it just puts you right into it. There's almost no... Dude, the Hangover 4 is like 200 minutes. I mean, <laughs> right. it's just ridiculous. Right. Like, yeah, not, I don't need to, to see uh, whatever... Uh, Greg uh, Galifianakis, Zach Galifianakis running around screaming an extra whatever. Yep. I'm complaining. No, I hear you. It's, um, I don't know. It's just, when I talk about how movies from the 70s have this special aura about them, even if they're completely different from each other, like, that. that's just, I don't know. Agira is one of those movies. It just, it's, um, it's really perfect in its own imperfect, crazy way where, they really only had one chance to get this thing to make it. It's not like they were going to be able to, you know, take a lot of swings uh, at getting these scenes right. And so what you see is the footage that they were able to get. And like I said, it's, it kind of just feels miraculous that they got what they got. And um, just the movie is so cool. And the performance is so cool. Like Kinski is just insane. All right. Well, let us know what you think. I would yeah, definitely recommend you go watch this movie. Yeah, a million percent. And we'll be back next time to talk uh Twin Peaks. We're starting to uh we're starting to get into phase two of season two here with the next Twin Peaks episode. So everybody uh watch that and, and join us next time. Oh, a lot of important things are gonna happen. Yeah. Yeah, I just got the same sense watching a gear as I did watching Rublev. I don't know. I I just my brain just put them in the same category. Yeah. I got to think about that. Why I did that automatically? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they're kind of historical, you know, epics. Uh, they're about, I don't know. Historical weird Derek movie? Yeah. Uh, you know, civilization seeking towards something new. I don't know. There, there's some common thread there. Horses being hurt. True. <laughs> Animal cruelty. Yeah, that's there. <laughs> It's like I'm I'm the last guy to join PETA in the world, but even even just with my sensibilities, you're like, Ew. yeah, that horse took a couple bad spills. Yeah, I think it was fine. It was on the shore in the end. It's fine. I'm sure it's fine. All right, everyone, let us know what you think. The Brazen Heads Podcast at gmail.com. All right, later, man. All right, late. <laughs>